guys uh, uh, are aware, uh, as of last week, um, we announced that uh, if you um, if you want to make up uh, the teaching that we do here, uh, we do have those posted online now. I think. Um, yeah, you, at the top you can uh, check out the uh, the uh, websites for uh, catching up on that, and also uh, take into account the opportunity to, um, uh, if you want to make any comments about the uh, the uh, teachings and questions, and uh, if we ever get any comments, Daddy and I'll respond to those and make up something. So uh, anyway, glad glad to have you. As Daddy said, we are going to be in Galatians three. And uh, this is one of those chapters that, in the context of the book of Galatians, it's an important chapter. In the context of the whole of the whole New Testament, it's an important chapter. And you could argue that, in the context of all of Scripture, it's an important chapter because it really pulls together some of the really big themes um, of the gospel and of how God has dealt with us. Uh, as a people since creation until now, uh, it's kind of a big deal. Uh, so we could either spend 30 minutes or so getting the, the big idea of this chapter, or we could probably spend three or four months on this chapter. And so I'm going to be forced to do the what may be the harder job of trying to do it in 25 minutes. Um, but uh, it it's important and uh, there will be a lot of things that we won't be able to deal with, but uh, we'll try to get at least the big idea. And then at some point down the road, uh, we might look at some of the individual features. You know, uh, Typically, uh, Daddy and I have uh, gone uh, verse by verse through books of the Bible, um, and I think that's uh, always a, a good approach. Occasionally, though, there are times when it's appropriate to do topical studies, um, uh, about particular concepts, this concept of systematic theology, where um, you know we might talk about you know righteousness by faith today, but all of the teaching of of the Bible on that topic is not just in this chapter. Uh, so there are, there are times when it's appropriate to pull everything that the Bible has to say about a topic and pull it together, and and that's also uh, very useful. <clears throat> so um, we reserve the right to do that at some point down the road. All right, well, that, uh, let's just jump on in. So at the latter part of chapter 2, where we were last week, um, there were a couple of really powerful verses. Um, one, of course, that is very familiar uh, to us, and that's Galatians 2.20, where it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself for me. And the thing that really struck me with new impact last week was the word now. And the life I now live in the flesh. Um, we think about the gospel many times in the context of conversion. Of what is it that gets me saved? And and that's germane to our topic today because there were people teaching that uh, faith in Christ was not enough to be a Christian. You had to do other things, specifically uh, keeping some of the ceremonial laws of uh, Judaism, uh, more specifically keeping um, the concept of circumcision. 
that you had to do this other thing too uh, in order to be a Christian. Uh, but the gospel is not just about conversion. It is also about living your life. And that's the part that struck me last time when it said, the life I now live in the flesh. So that was a challenge to me. Is that, you know, How is it that the gospel is helping me now? And what are things that the gospel... Uh, helping with me with now, and, and how is it that I live my faith now? And conversely, and I think maybe this will come to light in the teaching, that are there non-faith things that I'm doing? Are there non-gospel things that I'm doing under the guise of walking with Christ that are not necessarily by faith, uh, are not necessarily on the basis of the gospel, but might be because of tradition or culture or some other things that maybe I have added to the gospel, just like we accuse, and, and rightly so, the Judaizers in Galatia region of adding to the gospel. Are there things that we add to the gospel as well? And so um, that's kind of a, a big theme there. So when it says, the righteous shall live by faith, which is in our teaching today, um, I would stand that against the righteous shall live by tradition or the righteous shall live by culture or the righteous shall live by some other man-made rule or the righteous shall live because this preeminent person says so. Um, the righteous shall live by faith. And that's kind of the theme. So let's jump on in and walk through um, this really rich text and, and um I'm sorry for the speed. Verse 1. Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and, and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This kind of pleading, argumentative, attorney-like tone that I tried to read this passage with is probably Paul's intention. He would have been a great attorney. And were he alive today, he'd probably have a TV show because TV shows are, are either reality shows, which are not reality, or their doctor shows are crime and attorney shows. So those are pretty much the only shows you get uh, unless it's sports, which is probably the best kind. So um, this passage, are you so foolish? So he's really arguing against this concept on the basis of experience. He is asking the Galatians to think about their own experience. You've seen the gospel preached. You've seen stuff happen among you. Um, what does your own experience tell you? That's what he's asking. In the next passage, we're going to see he's going to have an argument from Scripture. And that actually starts in verse 6 
where it says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he goes on in verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. So this critical area that uh, Paul is uh, referring to comes from Genesis chapter 15. And this is uh, where the one of the clearest statements of the Abrahamic covenant is laid out. And this is where, um, I'll just read part of it. Uh, the Lord came to Abram, so named at that time. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And he goes on to say, but, you know, I don't have any children through which I could have a reward. And there's this negotiation. And verse 5 God brings him outside and says, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So here Paul goes all the way back to Genesis. Father Abraham, the father of Jewish, of the Jewish nation, you might say, before it was even Israel. And it was countered to him as righteousness by faith. And he's going to develop this uh, more a little further. Uh, one commentator I, wrote, I read that Paul refers to this particular verse um, more than any other verse in all of his writings. He goes back to this time and time again. He does it in Romans extensively uh, as another good example. Verse 10. Again, we're just trying to get through the, the passage here. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, some of this wording gets a little dense, right? It gets a little, it's not quite as readable as his argument tone. And part of the reason for that is, is, uh, is Paul is quoting lots of scripture in this passage. In fact, I also read that he quotes more scripture per capita, so to speak, per verse, in this section of Galatians, except for maybe one area in Romans 3. Uh, he's quoting from a lot of different passages. And if you um, read the New American Standard Bible, one of the cool features of the New American Standard Bible is if, if there is a quote in the... New Testament of an Old Testament verse, it puts it in all caps. And that's kind of neat. And um, I'm just going to read some of the, um, the quotations that he's used so far, which are straight out of Scripture. As I said in verse 
Genesis 12, 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's a direct quote. There's a quote, all the nations will be blessed in you. What we just read, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That's a direct quote. The righteous man shall live by faith is a direct quote. He who practices them shall live by them is a direct quote. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Also a direct quote. So in this section, we have a lot of verses there. And for preachers uh, to really understand how Paul uses scripture to support his argument is, uh, is really good uh, information for, for them to work through. Uh, but the point here is what is the purpose uh, of the law? And um, uh, the, the difference between law and faith and living by faith, great stuff there. Um, moving on, and he's going to develop this concept of law even more. And he says, verse 15, to give a human example. All right, so the first thing we had was an, the argument from their own experience. Uh, think about how you met Christ and so forth. Think about that. His second argument against this false gospel of adding things to the gospel was, uh, what about Scripture? Scripture says you're justified by faith. And now we have this third argument where he's going to say, uh, let me just give you a, a, a common example. And he's going to talk about uh, covenants. He said, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham as a promise, by a promise. Um, so again, he's, he's arguing against the law, things added to the law, and he points out the fact that this righteousness living by faith came over 400 years before the law did. So Abraham was not justified, was not righteous before God by the law. It was before then. Now, the Judaizers at this point were probably hoping that he would maybe kind of agree with them. I think they've got the idea that he doesn't agree with them. But the Judaizers would have been in agreement with him so far. But they would have gone over to Genesis chapter 17, and this is where God commands Abraham to circumcise everybody. Well, that also came 400 years before the law. So there are several things that the Judaizers get partly right, right? Um, the whole concept of being part of Abraham is not just because of the law. It's not just because of genealogy. It's not our ancestry. It was based on the covenants. But it wasn't the covenant of the circumcision like they wanted. It was even older than that. It was this covenant of the righteousness being by faith. Um, so he kind of knocks that argument out from under them. Verse 19, he's going to talk about the purpose of the law. Why then the law? And if you're following his argument, it's the law's not going to justify you, you can't get righteous by the law, so on and so forth. 
anti-law, somebody might rightly say, well, okay, then we'll, well, why got it even given? Why, why did he even give the law? What was such a big deal about it? Why did it become such a big deal? Well, he's going to answer that now. Why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring could come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under our guardian, for in Christ Jesus you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Some big ideas here. The original promise when God selected a people was to who? Abraham and his offspring, right? That's who the promise was made to. It says in verse 29, we are heirs according to promise. So we get to share in all the blessings and all the promises that God gave Abraham, we get to share in that inheritance. It's like being named in a will that you didn't know you were going to be named in. And it's not because you were related. It's not that you were expecting it. It's just from grace. And you get to participate in that not because you're Abraham's genealogy, but because you came to connect with God in the same way that Abraham did, and that was through faith. That's his big idea. So what was the purpose of the law? Several purposes. It, it says it was an intermediary. So it kept some order. It kept everybody in line until the fulfillment of the law came until the, the bringer of the promise, Christ, came. So it served that purpose. It also, by proscribing all the sacrificial elements, it gave us a picture of what the atoning sacrifice of Christ was going to look like and what it did legally, right? There was, a, there was sin, so the law taught us that there was such a thing as sin. The law taught us that there was such a thing as sinners, that... There were people who transgressed the law. The law also said that you weren't going to be perfect. The law also said there was going to be a remedy for that, the sacrificial system. But it also said that wasn't complete. It wasn't the ultimate thing. It was an intermediary thing. In fact, there's a Pastor N.T. Wright of uh, England. In his commentary, he gives his own um, translation. Um, just, I guess when you know Greek, you can do that. And he translates this where it says in verse 23, or verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. 
he translates that as babysitter the law was our babysitter until the real thing happened because apparently that word was the word that they used back then for um, babysitter or au pair or a nanny or it was the person that you subcontracted out some of that child care um, and you trusted that person and you expected that person to maintain the family rules and and so this was the the law was our babysitter I thought that was that was good babysitters aren't bad but they're stand-ins right and they're you know it's they they're okay until the parents come home well the law was our babysitter it kept us going so gosh what do we make of all this um, the the thing that the thing that kind of struck me as I go went through this was again he's really talking to this group about um, conversion and how is it that they became sharers of the promise and and I don't want to lose that original context but going back to 2.20, when we say the righteous shall now live by faith, um, I started thinking, okay, well, how does this apply more to us? If, if we're Christians, if we are already partakers in the promise, how does the gospel affect how I live? And this concept of surrogacy came to mind. Now, this might seem like really a, a strange connection, but... Um, a surrogate is a stand-in, all right? So let me give you a, a, medical, a medical example because that's ones I'm used to. So nowadays everybody is aware that you should probably have a lower cholesterol rather than a higher cholesterol, right? Because we found through studies that lower cholesterol levels are better in terms of less heart attacks and strokes and stuff like that. Well, it's hard to take thousands and thousands of people and just wait until somebody has a heart attack or a stroke. It takes a long time to run that study. They actually have been running that study in Framingham, Massachusetts for the last 50 or 60 years where they signed up a bunch of people and now they're 50 or 60 years older and they can see who had heart attacks and who had strokes. But if you wanted to see and test a drug on a group of people, it'd be a long time to see if your drug was going to be effective or not. So we use surrogates. We say, okay, we think lower cholesterols are better, so we're going to do this research and we're just going to check cholesterols on everybody and see if our drug works. Because now you can find out in a year or two, is it going to lower cholesterol or not? So we use cholesterol numbers as a surrogate for who's going to have heart attacks. Well, I think sometimes Christians, especially Christians who have kind of grown up in church, we use surrogates for whether someone is a good Christian or not, right? Um, because we don't know what's really in their heart. So you might say, well, we have these surrogates. And in fact, Daddy and I do this about, you know, what commentators do. Well, first thing he would do is he'd go and he'd look, where'd they go to school? Where'd they go to seminary? Right? All right, he went to New Orleans Theological. I mean, uh, yeah, New Orleans, uh, it's bad school. It's probably okay. Oh, he went to Dallas Theological. Well, he must be really good. Um, this guy spent some time at Wheaton, right? These are surrogates, right? 
What kind of Bible does it carry? Well, it's a New American Standard Bible. It's a pretty good Bible. It's a King James. Some people might think that's really good, King James. Um, we do it by appearance, right? How's this person look? What's this person do? We do it by uh, how they wear their hair, right? I was at the Indian Land uh, Fall Festival yesterday. got my dose of vitamin D for the day. And uh, I had somebody come up to me about all the security there, and they said, well, you know, times being what there are, you get a bunch of people together, who knows what kind of craziness might happen, you know, and terrorists and all that sort of stuff. And he said, but, you know, it's probably not that bad because that kind of person would probably just stand out here. You know, you kind of maybe just tell if there was a person, an Eastern person that, well, that's a, besides being kind of a racial comment, um, it also is just an example, okay? It was using a surrogate. You can't really tell if this person's going to be a threat or not, but you might look at their appearance and get some ideas. Uh, of course, we've got plenty of crazies in South Carolina that uh, look just like us, but um, the, we use a lot of substitutes, right? So I'm not going to really... Um, well, I don't know. I better not say what I'm gonna, not going to do because I might turn around and do it. Um, but I want to give you an example of something. Um, so I want you to turn back your clock. Uh, most of us are old enough. Sherry, you're an exception. Most of us are old enough to turn back the clock to the day. And some of you women might have come up, uh, been confronted with this. There was a day when some of you might have wondered... I think I'm going to wear pants to church. Right? All right, how many, how many women, there was a day when, when you didn't wear pants, and then there was a day when you kind of started to wear pants to church, right? I see some hands over here. All right, so I want to read just real quickly, because I think this is kind of cool. Um, I Googled, is it okay for women to wear pants in church? And I got some interesting things, and I found the, the rather godly response that reformulated the, the question, do godly women wear trousers? <laughs> that was the way, and I kind of knew right then where this was going. <clears throat> All right? So just listen to me. This is a pastor describing an encounter with a young lady who approached him um, about whether to join his church or not. Um, and she says, uh, do you believe it's okay for a woman to wear pants? He said, yes. And he, she said, well, you do? And he said, absolutely. And she says, but you're an independent Baptist preacher. Aren't you supposed to believe that women must be in dresses only? And he says, this is funny. You'll see later. It's not scriptural, I said, and therefore I reject it. You see, ma'am, I believe the Bible, the one right here in my hand. If this Bible says that you can wear pants or can't wear pants, then I'm obligated to tell you that. But it doesn't, so I wouldn't dare tell you that. She sighed. She says, where have you been hiding all these years? How could I have missed you? She went on to tell me that she had attended a good local independent Baptist church for a number of years. They were soul-winning, bus-running, fire and brimstone preaching, fried chicken-eating Baptists. She loved the church, but she hated the fact that she was forced to wear dresses all the time. She hated even more the fact that it was never revealed scripturally to her satisfaction why this was being imposed upon her and the other women. Even when she asked the pastor, the pastor, he never pointed her to where the Bible says a woman should never wear pants, uh, and so on and so forth. And then he's, after telling this story, he says, this is one of the, my reasons for writing this little pamphlet that he wrote. 
there are far too many women in independent baptist and other conservative though non baptist churches that are in the same dilemma in this precious lady as this precious lady she left the church went overseas came back and was faced with this decision about what church to go to it so it says because of this she languished in a rotten liberal niv reading church unwilling to put herself under that dress code again so the ironic thing here is that he has done what he's accused he wants to liberate her from not wearing dresses all the time right god bless him for doing that but yet he's going to be very disparaging against this other church because it reads the niv bible right i just think that's a little ironic Almost as ironic as the fact that I was at a booth handing out sunscreen um, and forgot to put some on. So there are a lot of surrogate things that we put on, right? Um, we look at things from the outside just as much as some of these folks were doing. Uh, I saw some young kids running around, and they were all about, uh, there was a couple teenage girls that came by the booth, and they just looked, you might say, a little worldly. They were all about their iPhones and everything. And one put it in her pocket. And you know how they, the pants are pretty tight and the pockets are pretty small. So the iPhone only fits about halfway into the pocket. But then as she turned around, I saw in the other pocket was jammed in a Gideon New Testament that they had been given out a few booths down. And I thought to myself, okay, I was real close to being guilty of the same thing that some of these were doing is judging from the outward and you know to her there was nothing disrespectful about her putting her iPhone in her back pocket I guarantee you it was one of her most valued possessions just like there was nothing disrespectful about taking that New Testament and putting it in her other back pocket we need to realize that there is a lot of gray out there None of us is going to give it, get it perfect even a little bit of the time, and none of us is going to get it even close to perfect all of the time. So I think we need to be careful about how we look at people, how we judge people, and try to really live by faith rather than by law. Um, because Jesus really amped it up a notch, right? He didn't really talk about murder. He talked about being angry. He didn't talk about adultery. He talked about lust. All right? Uh, and this has kind of thrown me off a little bit too. And um, I have a new daughter-in-law, as you guys know, and just love her. I gave it some pause when she came home um, a while back, and I heard them talking and realized that she had gotten a tattoo. Our family, we really didn't do tattoos. I kind of went through this a little bit when uh, my daughter got a nose piercing, um, but at least piercings are in the Bible, so I couldn't say too much about that. <laughs> I wasn't sure the tattoos were in the Bible, um, so I was a little uh, you know, head scratching about this, and then I realized that the tattoo that Sarah had was a Bible verse. Not only that, it was the same Bible verse that I had underlined in Mary's Bible when I gave her a Bible 30 years ago before we got married. So 
I thought it was a pretty awesome tattoo. <laughs> but again, you know, it's slippery stuff like that, right? It's slippery stuff, and we are very selective about what we endorse and what we don't and what we um, praise and what we criticize. And I just want us to all to be devoting ourselves to living by faith. Sometimes faith is a higher standard than the outside because faith requires us to look on the inside. And I think his ultimate argument here is that when he calls him in the very first section and says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of law, by hearing with faith. He brought it down and said, you know, this dalliance that you're having with these false teachers and this external thing that they're wanting you to do, do you realize that that is getting in the way of your actual relationship with Jesus? And, and if we're not careful, we can do that. And we can put people on pedestals and we can, you know... Uh, I was going to give you a little advance warning about this. I mean, there, there are people who we respect, who, who we can even look at their life and see God has worked through them, but then realize that they didn't need to be on that pedestal because they were struggling just like us. I've talked about Pastor Mark Driscoll, who um, has had some amazing theology. His doctrine book is really a great text for our generation. But yet it doesn't look like he handled church authority very well, and it looks like he didn't handle church money very well, and it's really, you know, not been good. There's a, a teacher that my dad and I looked up to for many years, a great teacher and a great biblist, but um, was was very much into this culture and independent Baptist thing. And I look at things a little bit differently, realizing that at the same time he was doing some of that great teaching, he was having this weird thing going on with one of his secretaries. Does that negate all of his teachings? No, but I just need to be careful who I put on these pedestals and what standards I judge people with. And we're usually willing to give grace to ourselves, but law to other people. And I'm kind of arguing kind of the reverse, that, that grace can be an easier standard in some ways because we realize our dependence on Christ, but it's a harder standard in other ways because I'm not just devoting myself to the law, I'm devoting myself to the spirit of the law, to the lawgiver, which is really a much higher standard. It's more pure, uh, but it's more gray. Because nobody can really see my heart. Anyway, this is complicated stuff that I will happily leave for Daddy to clean up later. Because <laughs> Merritt and I will be gone next week. And I've run over. So let's pray real quick. Father, I thank you that your word is very timely. And it can make us think. And Father, most of all, I pray that you'd help us to realize that it's through your word that we come to you through Christ. And that ultimately everything else is going to be burned away. And I just pray that you'd help us to all live by faith in the way you'd have us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.